Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. Well, as Protestant evangelical Christians, it's no secret that we value the Bible, right? We're on the same page there, you and I. We are. Okay, Bible, cool. The Bible is very important and it's valuable. I mean, we've spent... Um, lots of money paying to study it and and many years of our lives learning it. Right, yeah. So it's kind of our thing. It's the centerpiece of everything that we believe about God and Jesus and humanity and the world. And it's the lens through which we evaluate basically all moral and spiritual claims. And the Bible, I don't know if you know this, hopefully most people know this, but if this is new information, the Bible actually isn't a book, but it's a library of books. And that library of books is what is commonly referred to as the canon. Now, canon is a Greek word that literally means measuring rod. So when you look at the canon of Scripture, it is the standard rule by which all claims are measured and uh, and determined to be either true or false, beneficial, harmful, healthy, unhealthy. It's the, the canon. It's the measuring rod by which we evaluate all claims as either true or false. And that's because the Bible is both inspired and authoritative. And when we say inspired... What we mean is that it's God-breathed, to pull the language from 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17, uh, meaning that every text within the canon has two authors, those two authors being the human author and the Holy Spirit. And so because it is God-breathed, it's inspired, it's authoritative, meaning that it has the final say uh, when it comes to any moral claim, any spiritual truth, uh, it's infallible, meaning that it doesn't contain uh, any moral or spiritual claim that could be wrong or false or unhealthy. Uh, but is the Bible inerrant? Does the Bible contain no errors? It seems, that seems like an easy question to follow up and say, well, well in, in light of everything else, it seems like the answer would be yes, it's inerrant. Right. Um. But there's actually a lot of debate around that single word, inerrant, and it's kind of a loaded term with a lot of history and a lot of fighting. And so I thought that we would talk about that today, and that is the inerrancy of Scripture. But we'll dive into that in just a moment. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So, is the Bible inerrant? Not everybody agrees. I feel like when we pose any question, we can follow it up by saying that. Right, because the church has a lot of history, has a lot of different people, has um, 
yeah, it's had some really good times and had some really dark times. Uh, the Crusades definitely were not the best time in church history, uh, just to name a bad time in church history. But yeah, when it comes to the inerrancy of scripture, uh, there are um, varying views on it. And I think it's because, like you said earlier, that word is so loaded. And people what, mean different things when they say yes, it. Everyone, not everyone, but camps are defining inerrancy differently. And so if we're not working from the same starting definition, it makes sense that not everyone agrees with the fact that the Bible is inerrant because we're operating from different definitions of what does that actually mean? Right. What so does there it might mean? be two people that say, yes, I believe the Bible is inerrant, but they say like, if you mean inerrancy the way you're defining it, no, I don't. Yes. But if I mean it the way I'm defining it, then yes. Right. Yeah. And inerrancy meaning without error. Which seems like a simple Which, concept, but we'll dive into it as to why it's not necessarily that simple. Yeah, because as you really look at it from different angles, you're like, oh, um, no, I, yeah, and no, all at the same time. Yeah, so we'll kind of go through why there are differing views based on the definitions of inerrancy. Yeah, and this debate specifically around the word inerrancy is actually a pretty new debate. So just to go through kind of the history of inerrancy, we'll take it all the way back to the beginning. So Christian belief in the Bible's authority can be traced back basically to the earliest days of the church. When the New Testament documents were authored, they were accepted as divinely inspired and authoritative. So when Paul wrote a letter to the Romans, they immediately started to copy that and send it around because they perceived it to have divine apostolic authority. And so that was part of their their canon of texts. And uh, pretty much on the same level as the Hebrew scriptures that they had inherited, uh, which now comprise our Old Testament in our Bible. And so there are these documents that are kind of floating around. There are documents that aren't authoritative but are helpful and they're circulating around. And there are documents that are authoritative, but not everybody had like a New Testament. Like they didn't have the, the whole uh, set of documents until the fourth century. At the Council of Nicaea, everybody sat down and they said, this text, is this one authoritative? Have everyone always thought of this as authoritative? And they say, no, this one, Paul's letters to the Romans, yes, we've all accepted like that. We, we've known from the beginning that that was authoritative. And that's finally when we got the, quote, the Bible. Wasn't until the fourth century at the Council of Nicaea where it's like, here is the official list of the, the documents that have been uh, accepted as authoritative since their writing. And so there was always, even from from the time that Paul was still alive and writing, there was this uh, acceptance of the authority of his words as scripture. And so that, that goes back to the, to the beginning. And um, so then there's not a whole lot of questions about that. Like the Bible is the Bible. Uh, and the question about the place of the Bible didn't really uh, arise again in any real way until the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. So we had, you know, 12 of centuries time, of Yeah, a of lot of time quiet. went by where there weren't any debates and everyone was on the same page of accepting Scripture um, as it was as the full canon. Yeah. And just to give a, a snapshot of the time period between the 4th century and the 16th century, they had all kinds of councils, and we've talked about some of those. 
and they kept going and going and going. And there's the so there was this increasing kind of catalog of church tradition and kind of authoritative councils and interpretations of what things were. And when the Protestant Reformation comes around, Luther says, "I disagree with your interpretation of what the Scripture was on these key points." Um, and there were there were specifics of that. Um, and they said, "You can't do that because that's the official church canon." And he says, "No, the only canon is the Scripture." And uh, the the interpretation of the scripture is not authoritative, even if it's coming from a broad consensus within the church. And so that's what launched the the Protestant Reformation. He's it wasn't a rejection of of the church tradition or church teachings on the whole necessarily. They say like none of that is valuable, but saying like there's a supremacy of the scripture that you can question the church's teaching, but you can't question the Bible. If that makes sense. Because they were saying you can't question either. He says, no, no, no. I'm, I can't question the Bible, but I can question you. Right, because at that point, the it was the Catholic Church that operated as um, tradition and teaching within the church was just as authoritative as Scripture itself. Uh, all of those things sat within the same, like, um, I guess, hierarchy of authority is you have Scripture you have the teaching of scripture and the traditions of the church. They all sit on the same playing field. And then there are levels below that of authority. But the Bible was not supreme over the teachings of the church. It was parallel with the authority of the church. And Martin Luther came in and was like, wait, hold the phone, everybody. Uh, by the Bible absolutely is authoritative and that is the supreme authority. And then the teachings of man, of leaders of the church fall underneath scripture. Um, but those things are open to question, uh, as I'm reading it, as other people are studying it. So we don't all necessarily need to arrive at the same teaching and interpretation, but we all need to admit and understand that scripture itself holds the ultimate authority. Yeah, and so what that did is that really democratized interpretation of Scripture. In that before, there's one interpretation, the church's interpretation. Now it's up to you know believers that are educated and have the Holy Spirit and know how to work with the original languages and, and to interpret the Bible. And that's why we have you know the proliferation of denominations after that, because a lot of people saw it a lot of different ways. And so there was this diversity of theology that sprang from the Protestant Reformation uh, because of that democratization. And the part and parcel of that democratization is that people had bad interpretations as well. Yes, and unfortunately. And even just a bad conception of what Scripture is. Mm-hmm. And so... The question of inerrancy didn't really become a topic of live debate until the 18th and 19th century, because uh, before then that wasn't really like a concern. It was like uh, I think the Bible was referred to as infallible, certainly, but like is it errant or inerrant uh, with regard to whatever claims it's making? Uh, that didn't really feature in the discussion. Like that wasn't like a framework that people were thinking through, and so that debate it it arose during the Enlightenment era. And during that time, there were uh, many what would be referred to as um, liberal theologians. So there's like conservative theologians and liberal theologians. That wasn't a political term. That's a theological term about how you see the authority of Scripture, the place of Scripture, uh, and the claims that it makes. Do you hold a more literalistic approach or do you not? And so the the, the liberal side would not. And so um, they began to question uh, the historicity of certain biblical accounts, just you know, such as the six day creation, uh, 
you know, literal six-day creation as described in Genesis. Noah's flood, was that really like a worldwide event? Uh, and they began to employ this hermeneutic of suspicion, you know, well beyond those debates into pretty much, you know, everything that the, the Bible said was literally true. Even into uh, Jesus himself. I mean, you see some real liberal theology that is saying like, no, Jesus, it wasn't, he didn't really come in the physical form. This is, if, when we look at it, we can actually interpret it pretty figuratively. Um, and so you really see the pendulum swinging quite a bit from that conservative end of uh, theological interpretation to the liberal end of theological interpretation. Uh, and it kind of feels like it's the Wild West of interpreting Scripture when you have two um, just polar opposite understandings. Yeah, there was a conservative side that said basically all of this happened regardless of how crazy it seems. And the liberal side is like none of this happened regardless of how reasonable it seems. Is yeah. basically the direction. Yeah, and that then it there's went. people that fall on you know every every notch, but between those two things. Yeah, and so like these liberal theologians, they didn't necessarily deny that these accounts were uh, true. They just didn't think that they were like literal or factual. But they said they're true nonetheless, if that makes sense. And so some of those theologians, they like really over-spiritualized, as you said, and kind of allegoricalized. Is that a word? It is now. Allegorized. Um, I'm not um, sure. They, they kind of interpreted it allegorically. <laughs> there you go. Um. To the point where, like, nothing was really real or meaningful anymore. And probably the most famous among them was Frederick Schleiermacher. I don't know if you could tell by his name. He was a German theologian. Uh, But he really defined theology in subjective terms. Like, he kind of defined God as, like, a feeling of dependence. Like, that's what, who or what God is. Um, And so he really, like, denied core tenets of Christian faith by just kind of spiritualizing them away. And in the end, he could hardly be characterized as an Orthodox Christian. But he kind of spawned an entire school of thought in progressive Christianity. And um, probably a modern example of that would be this progressive Christianity. We talked about this a number of months ago where uh, there are some who are making this whole argument like Jesus is trans, where it's like not connected to any kind of reality scholarship. It's just kind of like this real subjective Jesus can be whatever I want him to be kind of a thing. And yeah, so those and are kind of like the theological descendants of Schleiermacher. And this idea that scripture can really be anything I want it to be. Um, I don't have to do the due diligence of understanding language, of understanding uh, cultural context, historical context, literary context. Like none of that really matters. Yeah, if God um, is just a feeling. Yeah, if God's just a feeling, whatever I sense this passage is uh, saying to me, then that's the right interpretation because um, everyone can interpret scripture however they choose based on uh, their reading of it. So again, it really enters into this Wild West understanding of scripture because there are no boundaries. When you when you when you end up on the real far liberal end of things, there are no boundaries of how you can understand scripture, how you come to the place of interpreting scripture. But then you have the conservative side where there are uh, very, very rigid boundaries and. Um, and I think we can see some of the downsides of that too. 
Um, and we'll kind of talk a little bit more about that as we go further into this topic. Yeah. So as you get into the 20th century, um, these camps are pretty well defined uh, in you know progressive Christianity or liberal Christianity and conservative evangelicalism. Um, and the debate is continuing on, and this is uh, what is referred to now towards the, the latter part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, uh, the modernist fundamentalist controversy, where the evangelicals uh, basically get their heritage from the fundamentalist side of that, which split off later into people who say we're fundamentalists and people who say we're evangelicals, which was, you know, a further split that way where the fundamentalists just like kept going right. And, uh, evangelicals were, were trying to stay, uh, within the bounds of, you know, reality, but then also not on the, the far right of those things. Uh, but this conversation kind of continued to swirl. This debate can continued to swirl until the seventies, in 1978, there was this group of evangelicals that assembled in the city of Chicago, and they wanted to provide a definitive statement regarding the conservative evangelical view of biblical authority, and it's called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And this is really like where the language of inerrancy was codified, uh, and I want to dive into that, but we'll do that in just a moment. So the year is 1978. I have aviator sunglasses and a handlebar mustache. I imagine you have some kind I, of Farrah Fawcett hair going I on. I was going to say, I have really stylish hair. Okay. That's probably all I know. Uh, and this group of evangelicals, they've assembled in Chicago. They've got themselves a nice slice of Chicago pizza. And they said, all right, we're going to figure this out. We're going to hammer out this whole uh, biblical inerrancy thing. And they had this uh, conference, and they came up with this statement that's become pretty definitive. It's called the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And it, the notable signers in it were uh, W.A. Criswell, who was you know a longtime leader in the Southern Baptist Convention, Hal Lindsey, Josh McDowell, John MacArthur, J.I. Packer, Luis Palau, uh, Paige Patterson, Paul Pressler, Francis Schaefer, R.C. Sproul. I mean, some of these folks uh, today are... Uh, have questionable repute, um, particularly, you know, Paige Patterson, Paul Pressler, Criswell, depending on how you feel about him, Joe MacArthur, depending on how you feel about him. Uh, but they weren't of questionable repute in their time. Uh, these were kind of like pretty definitive uh, evangelical voices in 1978. And so this document was like widely adopted um, by a lot of evangelicals. And so this document includes 19 articles that each include an affirmation and a denial. Um, but they offered a short summary at the front end that I thought it would be helpful to read that kind of summarizes the document. And as I read it, you'll probably kind of find that like a lot of this is pretty like not controversial. Like it's not uh, anything that you'd be like, oh, well, that that's interesting. I didn't expect to see that there. Right. But don't worry. We'll get there. Yeah. So number one. God, who is himself truth and speaks truth only, has inspired Holy Scripture in order thereby to reveal himself to lost mankind through Jesus Christ as creator and Lord, redeemer and judge. Holy Scripture is God's witness to himself. Number two, Holy Scripture, being God's own word, written by men, prepared and superintended by his spirit, 
is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. Number three, the Holy Spirit, Scripture's divine author, both authenticates it to us by his inward witness and opens our minds to understand its meaning. Number four, being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. Number five, the authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded or made relative to a view contrary to the Bible's own, and such lapses bring serious loss to both the individual and the church. So all told, none of this is terribly controversial for Bible-believing evangelicals. Right. And then, so then, like I said, there's 19 articles with an affirmation and a denial in each of them. And I won't read all of those, but I'll just kind of summarize the main points here where it's, you know, basically all scripture is authoritative. Uh, Nothing in one part of scripture contradicts something else in another part of scripture. Uh, Scripture gives us uh, everything we need to know about how to be saved. Uh, Interpreting scripture requires paying attention to history and literary style. Uh, Inerrancy applies strictly to the original manuscripts. Uh, which we don't have, but we do have highly accurate representations of them in the form of thousands and thousands and thousands of copies. Uh, there are some minor errors in the current manuscripts that we have that that we can't solve for, but they don't actually affect major theological claims. So, like, there's that one example uh, when you compare uh, the accounts of Kings and Chronicles, which are parallel accounts. In one of them, it says, uh, you know, I can't even remember the numbers that David has this number of chariots and in the other account it says he has that number of chariots and there's like a, a, a zero missing off of one end of them. So it's like he has a, you know, 10 X more in one account than he had in the other. That's obviously a transcription error. We don't know where it started. We don't know how many chariots he actually had, but is it really that important that we know how many chariots that he had? So we do have the, so they kind of account for those kinds of, of errors. So all of that is like, yeah, that's standard this is all boilerplate. Like this is, you know, the part of the terms and conditions you don't even read. You just sign it. This is the standard. <laughs> right. But for the most part, everyone agrees with with this and there's not much debate surrounding any of these points. Yeah. There are a couple of the articles, though, that do kind of and it's uh, it's subtle, um, but they do kind of um, insert something that is a narrower view of what it means to affirm an errancy. And the first one is in Article 12. It says, We deny that biblical infallibility and inerrancy are limited to spiritual, religious, or redemptive themes, exclusive of assertions in the fields of history and science. We further deny that scientific hypotheses about earth history may properly be used to overturn the teaching of Scripture on creation and the flood. And then skip down to verse, not, not verse, Article 18. It says, we affirm that the text of Scripture is to be interpreted by a grammatico-historical exegesis, taking account of its literary forms and devices, and that Scripture is to interpret Scripture. We deny the legitimacy of 
any treatment of the text or quest for sources lying behind it that leads to relativizing, dehistoricizing, or discounting its teaching or rejecting its claims to authorship. There, there are some subtle things in there that are that are packed in that we'll we'll want to talk about. So, this statement mostly uncontroversial. It does set forth a particular vision for what inerrancy means, uh, kind of over and against some divergent understandings. So, to some, affirming inerrancy it it means that you're not only affirming that the Bible is authoritative, but you're also affirming a particular interpretation and also a a particular hermeneutic or method of interpretation. So in other words, to, you know, the signers of this document, the Bible does not err in what it affirms and what it affirms is only knowable through the grammatical, historical, exegetical process and a very literalistic reading of every story in both the Old and New Testaments. So according to the Chicago Statement, affirming that the Bible is inerrant necessarily requires that you have a commitment to a certain interpretation and a certain type of interpretation. And I guess that makes sense because what they they were responding to was like, yeah, we believe in the authority of Scripture, but we think that like Jesus wasn't even a real person. And so they said, well, no, that's that's not right. That uh, obviously there are, are are historical things that need to be true in order for this to be verifiable. Uh, but they kind of go the opposite direction and say, so Genesis one needs to be literally six days. The flood literally needs to have been a worldwide flood. Um, all of these historical questions, like we need to take them very literally. Otherwise, you're rejecting that the Bible is an errant and you're saying that it's lying. Yeah. And at that point, you had a lot happening within the world of science, especially with Darwinism and evolution and un- like what was being taught within schools. Um, and so I imagine a large part of that, too, is some pushback against believers who were trying to reconcile um, what was being taught like nationwide on the history of the earth. Um, and so this kind of pulls that back and says, no, we have to go to scripture for these things, which scripture says um, the world was formed in six days. And by that, we mean a very literal. And it's only 6,000 six years old. And that's the, you could, the yeah. only proper way to read it is yeah. that way. And if you read it any other way. You're a liberal. Then you're a liberal and you're not actually um, holding to the inerrancy of scripture. So I think there was a lot happening, which is the same thing when we go back to the councils, right? The reason the councils were put in place is because there was a whole lot of crazy talk about uh, different theological views. And so the same thing was happening here in Chicago as they gathered this group of men together to decide what is it that we truly believe the inerrancy of scripture means it wasn't um, just in this isolated spot of, let's just think about the inerrancy of Scripture. There were outside forces that they were trying to combat by actually putting this in writing and saying, this is what we believe. Yeah, I think the difference between this and Nicaea is that Nicaea was the gathering of literally every bishop in the entire church at that point, And this was just a group of white evangelicals meeting over a slice in Chicago. But nonetheless, no, certainly. But I'm just saying in the same there's the parallels of other things were happening around them that were causing them to have to refute 
certain beliefs. Right. And so that's why they came up with this. Uh, but the, the affirmations and denials that they have in this as to the interpretation of Scripture aren't as universal as the longstanding belief in the supremacy of Scripture is. So there are people who believe in the supremacy of Scripture, that is the, the, the grid through which you evaluate everything else, that uh, have a broader definition of what it means that the Bible would be inerrant than this statement would allow for. And so, um, and that was a point of contention at the time, I think. Uh, for instance, uh, Billy Graham did not sign the Chicago Statement. Now, Billy Graham, he probably fully agreed with everything that the Chicago Statement affirmed. I, I imagine he was a young Earth creationist. I imagine that he believed in a worldwide flood. I imagine that, uh, you know, obviously he used the historical, grammatical, uh, exegetical um, method to interpret Scripture. And so there, there wasn't anything in here that I think that he would personally object to. Um, and also, he wasn't, like, against signing big sweeping documents and having giant councils. I mean, he was one of the people who um, helped initiate and lead uh, the Lausanne Covenant um, that, you know, that we have this 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 large statement of faith from uh, the, the Lausanne Covenant and a commitment to missions and things like that uh, that, you know, is, is also widely accepted among evangelicals. And so he wasn't against the old, you know, any of these kinds of things. He just thought that this statement in particular – uh, even though it likely represented his own personal views, uh, it was just too narrow. And he didn't want to be um, signing something that would put a dividing line between him and other Christians that he could possibly partner with for evangelism purposes uh, that would cause him to break fellowship with those uh, other evangelicals or other Protestants because they didn't agree with this particularly narrow understanding of what it means to be uh, someone who believes in the inerrancy of Scripture. And I think it's important that you bring up Billy Graham in this because obviously he in many ways is he's well, the evangel he's the evangelical canon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you talk about uh, evangelicalism, and you you think of Billy Graham, right? I mean, that was I've once um, heard it defined that way that an evan- evangelical is someone who likes Billy Graham. Yeah, right. I mean, if I mean, you like Billy Graham, you're probably an evangelical. Exactly, and if you're familiar with him, and uh, I mean, just the the influence that he has had over evangelicals at large, regardless of which denomination you are part of, um, is pretty remarkable uh, what he was able to accomplish in his lifetime that uh, just a wide number of Christians love him and support him. He was able to cross denominational lines quite a bit more than I think most preachers can. Um, So it's important to just bring up the fact that he even though he very likely agreed with everything happening in this uh, statement, he didn't feel comfortable signing it because there were certain aspects of it that were very narrow to his beliefs. Um, and he was able to at least recognize that we can't necessarily say this is the only way, even though it's something I agree with. Right. And so obviously Billy Graham is not infallible. That's the whole point that, of this conversation. Yes. But it is to say, it's not nothing that he he thought it was it was too narrow. And so as to the narrowness of uh, the Chicago Statement, um, where it's more narrow than I think the church broadly has landed. Uh, so if you even look back to like the, the church fathers, uh, even the New Testament writers are quoting Old Testament passages. 
they didn't actually use the grammatical historical method of exegesis, which the Chicago Statement sets forth as necessary and essential to inerrancy. Have you have have you ever seen like read like early church documents, um, written by church fathers and the way they quote um, passages of scripture? I mean, I know that I've read them, but I can't think of what you're... Oh, just the way that they pull stuff, we would be like, that's terrible exegesis. Because oh, we're thoroughly yes. trained in the historical grammatical method of exegesis, where um, in the past there's been allegorical readings as far back as like second century. They do kind of reading things in the Bible a little bit more allegorically. Uh, there's theological interpretation of scripture, um, which is uh, similar to that. Um the method that, that we use, and I think helps us get at the authorial intent of Scripture, is the historical grammatical method of exegesis. But it's not the only one the churches use. Um, and so, like, that's kind of a narrowing of it. Uh, as to the dehistoricizing clause in there, uh, so the the historicity and authorship of of certain Bible accounts is not as unquestioned or unquestionable as the Chicago statement would make it seem. So when we look at like the the historicity, I mean, I mean like how historically accurate is it? Uh, when we look at the New Testament, it's actually pretty well documented. Like Jesus was a real person. Um, the the events that happened in the New Testament are 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 kind of in in some ways verified. Um, you know, obviously, there's details that the scriptures give us that we don't get anywhere else, and so they not everything has a you know a backup source or whatever. The Bible is itself a historical source, um, but the the general framework of you know um, reliability is there. I mean, there are some notable exceptions, like like in Luke, and this isn't even like um, something of like a doubt, but like he didn't arrange his gospel chronologically. There's a certain section. But from when Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem to when he gets to Jerusalem, there are vignettes of his ministry that are told out of chronological order. And so, like, that's, you know, something to consider that he's telling a, a theological telling of Jesus' life rather than a purely historical one. Right. And that goes back to understanding the author and what they're trying to do with that gospel, especially when you look at the four gospels. If you can really see the audience is different. What they're really trying to hone in on is different, even though you see so many parallels between the four Gospels. Uh, their end goal within each uh, book is different. And what they're trying to communicate is a little bit different, even though it's the telling of the same information. And so to look at the Gospels, even just from a purely historical standpoint, it's a mess. Is, you can't make time, you can't make sense of the, right. the timeline as you're trying. You know, you're sitting on your whiteboard reading and trying to draw the timeline. To look at the Gospels purely from a historical standpoint is is to misinterpret what the intention of the author was. Right, but the historicity is there still, nonetheless. Certainly, but you can't go to it as a book. A you're not reading Josephus. Exactly. And I mean, that's the same thing with Genesis. Right. Which I think we'll kind of point out some of those things a little bit later. But Genesis was not written as um, a book detailing the history of the creation of the earth. That was not its point. Right. Yeah. And even with the New Testament, I mean, we do have, there are some questionable things like 
uh, two specific passages, like Mark 16, uh, 9 through 20, that passage at the end of Mark, kind of an addendum of epilogue after the resurrection, uh, and John uh, seven fifty three through 8, uh, 11, uh, this is a story of the woman who was caught in adultery, and he writes something in the sand, he says, do not, you know, let he who was without sin cast the first stone. Those um, accounts, pericope, if you want to be fancy with your words, uh, were not in the original text. For a long time, we thought they were, and they weren't, uh, because we just have better, you know, documents to look at. We have scholarship that that determined, like, hey, you know, this wasn't there. Uh, did those events actually happen? Well, I mean, it kind of puts a question mark. And did the, did those two um, vignettes in Jesus' life actually occur? I tend to b- believe that they did, but you know, there's there's some questions there. But that's about as bad as it gets with the New Testament. It's mostly, you know, the historicity is is well documented and documented and pretty secure. Now, when you get to the Old Testament, it gets a little bit more ambiguous, and this kind of goes back to the literal six day creation. It's very much disputed, uh, as, as well as the idea of Noah's flood indeed being a worldwide event. It's so interesting that now I understand how highly disputed these things are, uh, but I grew up only understanding that creation was formed in six days, and there were like there was just no other interpretation. I was not given any preview to that being an option or. Uh, and it, rightfully so, because as a preacher, you're going to preach what, what you understand the scripture to be. But it wasn't until like later in life for me that I was like, oh, maybe there's actually another way to view it that can still uh, see scripture as truth, that can still see it as authoritative, that can still um, hold to it as supreme in your life, even if you understand it a little bit differently. And a lot of that goes back to what was happening for the writers and how did they write literature, right? Right. Um, and there's a lot even in the Old Testament where it's it's describing the numbers of horses and the numbers of chariots and the number of uh, livestock and... Were those the very literal counts that Abraham had, that Joseph had, that Jacob had? It, did they actually have, you know, 10,000 goats? Like who was out there counting these goats? Or were they just trying? <laughs> so one, two, quit moving, <laughs> yeah. quit moving. Yeah. One, two, I said stop. Right. But were they just trying to communicate? They had a lot. Mm-hmm. And so in the same way, uh, for our time, you know, if we want to communicate something, there's a bit of not necessarily hyperbole, but no, I'm not going to say, um, wow, they said, were, I've been waiting here for like a billion years. Yeah, exactly. I've been waiting here for a billion years or there were thousands of people there and no one, every pastor on Easter Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> yes. There's like 300 people. Wow. Wow. The room was full. It was packed. There was no room. There were people falling out of the windows. To sit. Yeah. But it's just that understanding of was the author trying to communicate a very literal number of yes, you know, so-and-so had 10,000 goats or are they just trying to communicate the blessing to which God had given them to where they had a great number of livestock for the time in which they were living. And there so also- that doesn't make it filled with errors it's just that it was never meant to be read in a very 
again, literal sense of, yes, there were 10,000 goats, 20,000 sheep, 50,000 chariots. It's just meant to show you they had a lot of things. Yeah, and there are also other interpretive choices that the Chicago Statement requires you to make. Like there is the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, It it has been broadly held for a long time that Moses authored those. But there is this other um, hypothesis called the uh, documentary hypothesis, I think is what it's called, that there were, um, what is it, four or five, four sources, I think. Uh, that were written sources that the eventual, I mean, compiler, probably not author, uh, but compiler of the Pentateuch uh, didn't assemble those into what we know as the first five books of the Bible until the Babylonian exile, as opposed to the idea that, you know, the Pentateuch was authored uh, before um, Israel uh, came into the land, in the, in the 40 years in the wilderness, that that's when it was authored by Moses. And so they're saying that if you believe in the uh, documentary hypothesis, then you don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture because you're questioning the authority of the authorship, even though there's nowhere in the Pentateuch that it says that Moses says, I write with my own hand. There's there was no. But, you know, that's one of the things. Uh, Another one. So so like things like um, there's a lot of scholars that don't believe that Job was a real person. Does it matter that Job was a real person in this instance? I don't think so. I mean, it matters that Jesus was a real person. It does, right? but it doesn't like, matter that Job was a real person. Exactly. Do we really think that this dude was sitting in ash for 10 days and he and his three friends were talking to each other in long-form sonnets? It's possible. Or was maybe this a literary work of somebody who was trying to illustrate a theological point? Yeah, and the same the same goes with uh, Jonah, Right. I mean, what did he actually get swallowed by a fish and spit out? Maybe there are some scholars who think that because if you okay, go back and read Jonah and tell me it's not ridiculous. <laughs> go back and read Jonah. Tell me it's not ridiculous. <laughs> tell me it's not. It doesn't read like satire. And so mm. there are scholars who think like, no, this was actually satirical to, to uh, kind of shame uh, the the people of Israel for their their hatred and, and lack of grace and. Um, lack of repentance even, and th- that it was this work of satire. Um, does it matter if Jonah wasn't a real person? To some people, yes. To me, I mean, I don't think it does. And I don't know that we can, um, I mean, to the best of our ability, we can discern authorial intent, but that takes a lot of work. It takes knowing, you know, did Jesus rise from the dead? I think we can look into the evidence of that. Was Jonah a real person? It's kind of like, well, it's up to anybody's guess. Like we don't have, we don't, we can't go to his grave. We don't have firsthand accounts. We just have this really weird book where he got swallowed by a fish and spit out in three days. Was Job a real person? I mean, if he was, he predates Abraham. And so like, good luck finding, you know, archeological evidence on that. And I don't think that it, it matters that he, was a real person. Right. Because as you're reading it, the, um, the authority of that story, um, and the message of it and what you're supposed to take away from a theological standpoint doesn't change. Yeah. And that's because the Bible and the authors of the Bible, both the human author and the Holy spirit, their purpose was never historical. Purely or primarily historical. I mean, they they put history in there, depending on the book and pretending on, you know, what it was. 
but it was never this is not a history book this is a a book of uh theology and so like genesis isn't a a science book it's a book refuting not Dor- darwin but refuting the other creation accounts that were e- existing at the time which said that the gods were uh chaotic that they were selfish that the the birth of uh, humanity was kind of incidental or accidental and they were really just not loved or important but they just you know were there to serve the gods God says that's not it I created with out of peace out of love out of intention with humanity as the centerpiece of that so that's the message of that text whether it was literally six days or not I is is not um, something I think we need to uh, have that be a hill we die on yeah, and it well, it's difficult, I think, for us as Westerners because of just the way our brains are wired and we like facts, we like history, we like things to be told in chronological order and to fit into these nice little categories. But that is not ancient Near Eastern culture, right? They There was oftentimes like an elaborate parable that would convey a timeless truth and that would not have been seen as disingenuous. That would have been perfectly acceptable. That would have been just fine because the goal was not to communicate history of someone's life. The goal was to communicate a timeless truth. And even if you look at Jesus's teachings, most of what we actually see when he's teaching is parables. Right. So even his teaching style is is drastically yeah, different. Yeah, it's like than saying like unless you believe that there was really a man who was putting, uh, you know, crops in his barn and thinks I need to get a bigger barn. Unless that was a real dude that God ga- came to and said you're dead tonight and you're taking none of it with you. Like you don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. It's like well, well, that's not that's not it, and so. Um, just the rigidity of like, uh, particularly just this literalistic understanding of the Old Testament. There are a number of scholars and Christians and thinkers who have rejected inerrancy as a term because of that. And one of them is uh, Fuller Seminary in Pasadena. On their statement of faith, they don't actually affirm inerrancy as uh, the Chicago statement uh, defines it. Uh, they say in there that where inerrancy refers to the infallibility of the Bible in everything it affirms about spiritual matters, then they're on board with that. But if you have to be like rigid with it, then they're like, well, I'm not so sure about that. And they list like a number of dangers, and I'll just read um, just a, uh, one little excerpt from it uh, on like the danger of inerrancy as defined by the Chicago Statement. They said that it prompts us to an inordinate defensiveness of Scripture that seems out of keeping with the bold confidence with which the prophets, the apostles, and our Lord proclaimed. And so what stands out to me there is like the defensiveness that's required to maintain this view of inerrancy. Like growing up, I was taught to believe that if you could disprove even one minor, obscure, historical detail in the Bible, even if you just pick some random thing in the Old Testament, if you could disprove that the historic you know, the historical truth of like one little thing, then your entire faith crumbles and you have to throw the entire Bible out. Which, when that's your stance, like you really like have, like if Job 
didn't really sit down with his four friends and speak in in long poems for 10 days, if that didn't literally happen, I have to throw my whole Bible out. If Jonah literally didn't get spit out by a fish, then that if that didn't happen, then I have to throw out my entire Bible. If there, if the the Earth wasn't created in six literal twenty four hour days, then I have to throw out my entire Bible. Like when when that's your view, when that you really have a vested interest in like quote unquote proving all these historical details, even if you have to be incredibly intellectually dishonest to do so. And so what it does is it it kills curiosity, it kills exploration it kills discovery and it is only concerned with preservation that we can't if if the house of cards is like so like blowing in the wind then you can't even like all you can do is like stand around it and try to make sure that it doesn't fall down rather than it being this this beautiful architecture that you can explore and discover and learn new things and have your perspective change because oh i looked at it at this angle and you know uh, as long as we we are still maintaining the authority um, we can explore uh, through good scholarship what the author's intent was behind any particular piece of scripture. I grew up in the same kind of understanding is you believe scripture and then you defend it. And if you have any questions about it, you you don't want to go down those rabbit holes because then you have to say, well, whatever is here is true and that's that's just what it is. Which there's definitely an element of that, right? You don't want to get rid of the uh, mysticism and the like spiritual aspect of what's happening within scripture. I mean, miracles, first of all, (laughs) and even a lot of what's happening within the Old Testament, too. So you don't want to try and just rationalize away everything, um, but you really pigeonhole yourself in to these rigid understandings of scripture And you're almost afraid to, like you said, be curious and to explore. Or even I remember being in seminary and hearing about some of the textual critical issues. And like, I just kind of got real squeamish in my chair because in my mind, I was like, wait, if there's, did this say Lord? Did this say Jesus? If there's one comma error, you have to throw the whole thing away. Yeah, Yeah. And now I'm just is my face shaking now. Uh, and I think that's where you even see the issue. And again, this is kind of a different issue, but it's it's somewhat parallel. But with a lot of people were upset about some of the translation changes from the original NIV to the new one saying like they, they removed Jesus, you know, 563 times. Uh, and really what they were doing was trying to see what was really happening within that um, they're trying to use the best documents yes. to the to use the exact language that as exact as we could and then translate it in a way that was you know easier to read but was also accurate to the language itself. Translation is a complicated process. Translation is very complicated. And, and then you're bringing then, in documentary evidence as to was it this did it say Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus? And then like, uh-huh, was a comma here? Uh-huh. Well, there was no commas in the original. Or maybe but it like, was just Christ and it wasn't Jesus or maybe it was Lord and it wasn't Jesus. Um, or it was Lord Jesus. It, it was, was Lord, Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. You know, right. there's thousands, right. thousands of these questions. Yeah, but you have someone who will sit there and see the highlight the number of times just J E S U S was in one translation, and how how many times it's in this one, and then say they removed it. They're removing Jesus from the Bible, and that's not what was happening, like at all. 
<laughs> we're not removing Jesus from translations. But when you have um, this very rigid understanding of inerrancy, you can find yourself down these like really crazy rabbit holes of they're taking Jesus out of the Bible. And you're like, how did we end up here? And it's because there's no room within the way that you see scripture and the way that you uphold the inerrancy of it that will allow for any other nuances or variables at all. Right. This isn't to say that like everything is gray and everything is ambiguous though. No, not at all. Like not everything is uncertain, but like it is to say like if our faith hinges on the accuracy of obscure historical details from the ancient near East 3000 years ago, we're in a, we're in a bit of a pickle here. Uh, the good news is it doesn't. And uh, we've talked about this before. I feel like it's important to always bring this back to this is that there's one historically verifiable event that serves as the anchor and uh, beyond it fans out to like we look at the authorial intent of the biblical authors. Um, but there there's this one fact that that is history that literally happened that we anchor our faith in. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in the words of Andy Stanley, he says, if a man can predict his own death and resurrection and he pulls it off, just go with whatever that man says. Jesus believed in the scriptures. We don't know exactly what his interpretation of the, every Hebrew scripture was. I mean, it'd be great to sit down if, oh, uh, if it, right. every, all of his words were <laughs> everything he ever taught was recorded. Yeah. We actually have a very small amount of teaching from the, the mouth of Jesus as it relates to he was walking around for three years talking the entire time. And we just have very small snippets. It would be nice to know, like, how he interpreted certain things. Um, but, we, you know, we, we as far as the Hebrew Scriptures, we do our best to have good scholarship, to uh, interpret those things well. But if Jesus really rose from the dead, then we have a faith. And um, we can have faith in those whom he appointed, who authored the New Testament documents through the Holy Spirit because he rose from the dead. And all of those folks also affirm the Hebrew scriptures, which are now part of our canon as well. And so there's a lot of questions about a lot of things, but my faith doesn't hinge on whether Jonah was a real person. My faith hinges on whether Jesus rose from the dead, which I think is eminently provable. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kainosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Hello, my name is Adam Comer. And I'm Ryan Chittister. And we're the host of Life After Addiction Podcast. If you or someone you love struggles with addiction, check us out, Life After Addiction Podcast, and you can subscribe at lifeaudio.com.